It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Pittsburgh Steelers fans, welcome back to the Steelers Retro Show from BehindTheSteelCurtain.com. It's that show where Tony Defio and myself, Brian Anthony Davis, we decide, hey, we've talked so much and we're going to continue to talk so much about the Pittsburgh Steelers in this calendar year. Let's go back to a time when they had a great run and we're going to just reminisce. So let's hop into that black and gold DeLorean together. Hey, Tony Defio, what's going on? I'm doing fantastic. I can't wait to go back and watch this game and 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 and, uh, and talk about it with you. It was it was so fun to watch on uh, on on YouTube last week, and and it, it, it had everything. And this is a game that I have never seen before. And usually, we're talking about games that we could remember, but this is one you've mentioned before that you remember some highlights of this iconic team. I don't remember much about it, and it's a time when the Steelers and Another team in the Steel City were playing for championships, so it's really exciting. What was going on? Where are we putting our time circuits at? Well, October 7th, 1979. And Tony, I'm going to ask you this question. What happened on October 5th, 1979, two days before on a Friday night? Uh, Would that be the Pirates clinching the National League pennant? Yes, they did. They swept the Cincinnati Reds. Three games to none. That's what the that's what it was back then. It was the best of three. For, they were going to Baltimore to get ready to work on winning the World Series. And yeah, they did. Spoiler alert. If you don't know this, mm-hmm. they won that. And that this was such a great time for me, Tony. Same for you. 
Oh yeah. I mean, well, actually I, I don't, I don't remember the, that much about that, about that world series, but, but I, it, it, I feel like I do because, because I, I've grown up with it uh, since that day. We are family, the, the theme song, sister sledge theme song from that team. And yeah, it was, it had to be a fun time to be in this city. Probably at that time, I was more of a follower of the pirates than I was the Steelers. Now I was a follower of the Steelers, but the pirates were on almost every night on our local station. So I was able to watch a lot of games and that whole family thing had me going the Stargell stars. The, it, it was a great time. Also, Tony, you gotta know this. Not only were the pirates, a family, the pirates and the Steelers were a family together. They shared three river stadium. Um, Steelers came out to batting practice. Uh, Chuck Tanner said, Hey, you guys could come and and, uh, hit balls around too. I mean, like during the playoffs and world series, they would come and do that. And what was really cool, a guy that was injured for the Steelers in this very game, we're going to talk about Lynn Swan was wearing that famous Pittsburgh pirates ball cap on the sidelines, the entire game with the pinstripes and the the black one with the pinstripes. And I think he had a Stargell star on there too. Yeah, it, it was great. They, 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 the Steelers were, were rooting for the Pirates in that World Series probably more than anybody. Uh, they, they lost a the game uh, during the World Series to, to the Bengals. They got blown out in Cincinnati, and Chuck Knoll was like, if I didn't know any better, you, I, thought, I would have thought you, you guys threw that game. I, that's how poorly they played that year, but they were so preoccupied. I'm, not, I'm sure that's not why they lost, but during that game against the Bengals, that, that five, uh, game five of the World Series was going on, so uh, that, that's the, one of the things that was on their mind. Absolutely. You know, so there weren't a lot of sad eyes in Pittsburgh when it came to their football and baseball team that year, but there were sad eyes on the music chart because that was the number one song for four weeks on this date in history on October 7th, 1979. Robert John and Sad Eyes, a song about a man telling his mistress, hey, we can't be together anymore. I'm going back to the, the wife, Tony. Yeah, talk about a, a song that's sad for two women. <laughs> Absolutely. It was a good song, though. Oh, yeah. I, I'm not going to sing it to you, so I, I promise you I won't do that. But I could, I could hear it playing in my head right now. I'm going to probably go download some Robert John right when we're out of here. And the next thing to talk about is, you know, hey, we could talk about the fact that Black Beauty was number one at the box office. Yeah, we could. But let's talk about this game. This was a time when the Steelers had a 12-game winning streak snapped the week before against the Philadelphia Eagles in week five to fall to four and one on the season. They were the defending champions, but they lost to the Eagles in Philadelphia, a place they could never win. And so they had to follow it up the next week in Cleveland against a Browns team that was also four and one. And uh, and had a quarterback in Brian Sipe that could really sling the football, Tony. Yeah, uh, the Oilers, uh, they weren't the only team from the old AFC Central that was uh, trying to uh, bust that door down. Like uh, Bum Phillips once said, uh, the Browns also had a pretty good team uh, at this time, and, and they were coming for the Steelers hard. And you know what? I'm glad you mentioned the Oilers. They were in first place as well. They had one loss as well, and were taking on the St. Louis Cardinals at the time of this very game. And you know what? The Cardinals were not a good team back then. And 
Houston was heavily favored over them, and that game was going on at the same time. So we'll probably check in on that game at the end of this one. But, Tony, let's get down to business. This is a game, like I said, you've got two teams playing in old Cleveland Municipal Stadium, the mistake by the lake. It was a windy, cold October day. It was a 4 o'clock game, too. So it was not the early game. It was the late game. That means it's going to be even cooler for these teams to play. Windy, you never know. There's always mist. There's there's some kind of wetness there in Cleveland. So the AFC Central battle was going to be a tough one for the Steelers, but they got something good going for the fact that they had, for the first time all season, their offensive line intact. John Kolb. Sam Davis, Mike Webster, Jerry Moon Mullins, and Larry Brown, who I don't remember too much of Larry Brown. I remember watching him in the 80s, but I didn't realize how big and imposing and how great he was. And he was there too. This was a very formidable line. And it was good to have them back because you had Franco Harris, Rocky Blyer, and Sidney Thornton, and the rookie Greg Hawthorne trying to run through some holes. They needed to get the running game going. Could they do it in this game? We will definitely see, but this is a fun one to talk about. So let's get started. The 59th meeting between the Browns and the Steelers. Once again, October 7th, 1979. And the newly acquired Dino Hall. He was set to go ahead and get the kickoff. And Dino Hall, Tony, wasn't he coaching Little League football the week before? Yeah, he was a guy off the street, and and, and now he's uh, he's returning uh, punts and kicks against the uh, world champion Steelers. And he set a record that day. Um, when I went back to look at this day in history, they mentioned Dino Hall. They didn't mention the game, but Dino Hall, who had nine kick returns, kick or punt returns in one game as a Cleveland Browns record and setting it. So that's really interesting. And he was a pretty good player, too. Um, he advanced the ball to the Browns 34 after fielding Matt Barr's kickoff, Matt Barr, the rookie from Penn State. Then Browns head coach Sam Rutigliano and offensive coordinator Jim Schaffner, they wanted to establish the run early. That's something that Don Crickey and John Brody in the booth for NBC was adamant that they had to do, and they mentioned that if you could do this against the Steel Curtain, this formidable foe of a defense, then you're going to do very well. And they had the running backs to do it. Now, Greg Pruitt was injured, Tony, but Mike Pruitt, no relation, I believe, and Calvin Hill. And Calvin Hill, I think he's famous for uh, siring a son. Is that, isn't that correct? Yeah, Grand Hill, a uh, uh, pretty good uh, college basketball player and, and, and a pretty good NBA player. And, and, and when I, when, you know, seeing, seeing Calvin Hill in this game was so weird for me because I'm so used to seeing him in those early 70s highlights uh, with the Cowboys. Yeah, I, I thought it was weird, too. I didn't remember that he was with the Browns. I thought it was really cool. So Jack Lambert and Dennis Dirt Winston, they assured that that wouldn't happen too early. They had a big hit on Pruitt on third down. The ball popped loose. Dennis Winston recovered just like that at the Browns 40. So the advantage of getting the ball first was not for the Browns. It was for the Steelers, Tony. Great tone to set to start the game, wouldn't you think? Absolutely. You're playing on a road against a, a division rival and, 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 and Dirt Winston was, uh, you know, we've talked about in the past, one, one of the unsung heroes from that era. Immediately, the Steelers started to move the chains when Sidney Thornton took the handoff from Terry Bradshaw. He rumbled right, 
behind a great block by Sam Davis for a gain of 23 yards. Then on third and one from the seven, just like that, Bradshaw found Benny Cunningham over the middle to what looked like a fumble, or it could have been an incompletion, but it was rolled a touchdown. The Steelers led 7-0, just like that. Tony, that would have probably been called back in today's modern era of football, wouldn't it? Yeah, ironically enough, it was later on in that year in the AFC Championship game when one of the biggest reasons why they they had they eventually had replay in the uh, Oilers game. But yeah, this this definitely looked like it could have been a fumble or at least an incomplete pass. But Bradshaw and Cunningham had a, a great chemistry in those days. They sure did. Now, someone else that had a great chemistry with his receivers was Brian Sipe. So he decided that he was going to try to get the Browns back to it. They started with a run to move the chains, but then here goes Sipe going back to throw. And it went into the wind, and the Browns had to punt. He could not connect. He was looking to strike quickly. He could not. Then another guy, he found John Stallworth right away, and that's Terry Bradshaw, if you don't know who I'm talking about, for a long pitch and catch for 37 yards down to the Cleveland 29. After moving the chains, Terry located Sidney Thornton in the end zone for a 10-yard scoring toss, just like that, 14-0 in favor of the Steelers. And they talked about Sidney Thornton playing behind Rocky Blyer and Franco Harris, how great he was. He was in 1979, yeah. Uh, they had a lot of injury issues, the Steelers uh, did, and, and he uh, he came in and played some valuable minutes for them. And and what I liked about this play the most is, is Bradshaw, you know, people forget what a great athlete he was and, and, and how he kind of stayed alive in, in, in the pocket and then found Thornton for that touchdown. He really did, and it was a very impressive display by Terry as well. In fact, he started off this game eight for eight. He did yeah. not throw a lot of uh, for a lot of yardage. He didn't have to, and you'll find out why. But he was really on in this game. And Terry in that season threw a lot of interceptions. There were a lot of turnovers um, for the Steelers in that 79 championship season, but not on this day. On the third series, the Browns, they started to move the ball down the field with, with receptions by Ozzie Newsome, the Hall of Famer, and Calvin Hill. And they would also log a pass interference with calls on Jack Lambert and another one on Mel Blunt. Cleveland did, however, they got stopped on the 12. They brought in the reliable Don Cockroft for a 19-yard field goal. Was Don Cockroft reliable on this kick, Tony? He was not. He, he sailed it wide right, and it was still 14-0 uh, good guys. Yes, it did go wide right. Steelers get the ball back on third and one from their own 29. The Steelers handed off Franco Harris to try to advance the chains. They needed to get that first down. They would not get the first down because, Tony, Franco Harris decided to do something else. It's one of those iconic plays I was talking about that I remember from my NFL films days in the 80s. He just he exploded down the right sideline, and, and people forget how fast Franco was. I mean, he just took off on his play, and he went pretty much untouched for the touchdown. It was, it was a, a magnificent run by him. Absolutely was. 21 nothing now, just like that. Barr would then kick off to Dino Hall, who would mishandle the pigskin. Tom Graves for the Steelers recovered. That's a name that you don't remember too often. Do you remember Tom Graves, Tony? Not even a little bit. I actually did. I, I remember Tom. He recovered the ball at the Steelers 12, excuse me, at the Browns 12 on the second play. Bradshaw went to Jim Smith, who was in for an injured Lynn Swan for a 12-yard score. 
That was in the corner of the end zone. Jim Smith was very good, Tony. Yeah, it was, it was a shame that he uh, signed with the uh, the USFL in the early 80s because he could have been a great replacement for Lynn Swan, who retired after the 82 season. But he was really a good young receiver for them in, in the late 70s and the early 80s. He was amazing in the USFL, though. Um, absolutely amazing. Uh, Steelers did not get the extra point. Matt Barr, he went left with it a little too wide into the wind. It was only 27 nothing. Only 27 nothing. Tony. <laughs> yeah. So Dino Hall, he gets another chance after the gaff, and he took it back to the 37-yard line. Not showing any nerves. Here comes Brian Sipe. He goes deep to Calvin Hill over Dirt Winston for a 31-yard gain to the Steelers' 32. Then after an 11-yard dash by Pruitt, Sipe lofted one to Cleo Miller, guarded by J.T. Thomas at the time. But Ozzie Newsom swooped in. He came out of nowhere to make the grab for the Browns. It was first and goal at the two. And Cleveland was going to score, weren't they, Tony? It sure looked like it at that point. Uh, they, they were set up to get right back into the game, but the Steelers would say otherwise. What did they say, Tony? You tell us. Somebody intercepted that football, and it was the great? The great and the future Hall of Famer, Donnie Schell, with the, with the end zone pick. He's, he had a lot of great picks for them in those days, and this was another important one. Every time we do a game from the 70s or the early 80s, Donnie Shell is going nuts and picking off balls. The one we did a few weeks ago with the Cincinnati Bengals in 1982, he had two interceptions. That guy was everywhere. I'm glad he finally made the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it was a long time coming for him. He gets overlooked a lot from those, those years, but he was a very valuable safety, and, and his stats hold up with any safety you, ever, you want to mention throughout his – he, he could stay right next to him. I mean, now he can for sure because he's a Hall of Famer. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and do this. Let's take a break and we'll be back right after this on the Steelers Retro Show. Stick around, my friends. Pittsburgh Steelers fans, welcome back to the Steelers Retro Show from BehindTheSteelCurtain.com. It's that show where Tony Defio and myself, Brian Anthony Davis, we decide, hey, we've talked so much and we're going to continue to talk so much about the Pittsburgh Steelers in this calendar year. Let's go back to a time when they had a great run and we're going to just reminisce. So let's hop into that black and gold DeLorean together. Hey, Tony Defio, what's going on? I'm doing fantastic. I can't wait to go back and watch this game and 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 and, uh, and talk about it with you. It was it was so fun to watch on uh, on on YouTube last week, and and it, 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 it had everything. And this is a game that I have never seen before. And usually we're talking about games that we could remember, but this is one you've mentioned before that you remember some highlights of this iconic team. I don't remember much about it, and it's a time when the Steelers and Another team in the Steel City were playing for championships, so it's really exciting. What was going on? Where are we putting our time circuits at? Well, October 7th, 1979. And Tony, I'm going to ask you this question. What happened on October 5th, 1979, two days before on a Friday night? Uh, would that be the 
Pirates clinching the National League pennant? Yes, they did. They swept the Cincinnati Reds three games to none. That's what the that's what it was back then. It was the best of three. They were going to Baltimore to get ready to work on winning the World Series. And yeah, they did. Spoiler alert. If you don't know this, Mm -hmm. they won that. And that this was such a great time for me, Tony. Same for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, actually, I I don't I don't remember that much about that about that world series, but, but I, it, it, I feel like I do because, because I, I've grown up with it uh, since that day, we are family, the, the theme song, sister sledge theme song from that team. And yeah, it was, it had to be a fun time to be in this city. Probably at that time, I was more of a follower of the pirates than I was the Steelers. Now I was a follower of the Steelers, but the pirates were on almost every night on our local station. So I was able to watch a lot of games and that whole family thing had me going the Stargell stars. The, it, it was a great time. Also, Tony, you gotta know this. Not only were the pirates, a family, the pirates and the Steelers were a family together. They shared three river stadium. Um, Steelers came out to batting practice. Uh, Chuck Tanner said, Hey, you guys could come and and, uh, hit balls around too. I mean, like during the playoffs and world series, they would come and do that. And what was really cool, a guy that was injured for the Steelers in this very game, we're going to talk about Lynn Swan was wearing that famous Pittsburgh pirates ball cap on the sidelines, the entire game with the pinstripes and the, the black one with the pinstripes. And I think he had a Stargell star on there too. Yeah, it, it was great. They, 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 the Steelers were, were rooting for the Pirates in that World Series probably more than anybody. Uh, they, they lost a game uh, during the World Series to, to the Bengals. They got blown out in Cincinnati, and Chuck Knoll was like, "If I didn't know any better, you, I thought I would have thought you, you guys threw that game. I, that's how poorly they played that year." But they were so preoccupied. I'm not. I'm sure that's not why they lost. But during that game against the Bengals, that that five uh, game five of the World Series was going on. So uh, that, that's the, one of the things that was on their mind. Absolutely. You know, so there weren't a lot of sad eyes in Pittsburgh when it came to their football and baseball team that year, but there were sad eyes on the music chart because that was the number one song for four weeks on this date in history on October 7th, 1979. Robert John and Sad Eyes, a song about a man telling his mistress, hey, we can't be together anymore. I'm going back to the, the wife, Tony. Yeah, talk about a, a song that's sad for two women. <laughs> Absolutely. It was a good song, though. Oh, yeah. I, I'm not going to sing it to you, so I, I promise you I won't do that. But I could, I could hear it playing in my head right now. I'm going to probably go download some Robert John right when we're out of here. And the next thing to talk about is, you know, hey, we could talk about the fact that Black Beauty was number one at the box office. Yeah, we could. But let's talk about this game. This was a time when the Steelers had a 12-game winning streak snapped the week before against the Philadelphia Eagles in week five to fall to four and one on the season. They were the defending champions, but they lost to the Eagles in Philadelphia, a place they could never win. And so they had to follow it up the next week in Cleveland against a Browns team that was also four and one. And uh, and had a quarterback in Brian Sipe that could really sling the football, Tony. Yeah, uh, the Oilers, uh, they weren't the only team from the old AFC Central that was uh, trying to uh, bust that door down. Like uh, Bum Phillips once said, uh, the Browns also had a pretty good team. 
uh, at this time and, and they were coming for the Steelers hard. And you know what? I'm glad you mentioned the Oilers. They were in first place as well. They had one loss as well and were taking on the St. Louis Cardinals at the time of this very game. And you know what? The Cardinals were not a good team back then. And Houston was heavily favored over them. And that game was going on at the same time. So we'll probably check in on that game at the end of this one. But Tony, let's get down to business. This is a game, like I said, you've got two teams playing in old Cleveland Municipal Stadium, the mistake by the lake. It was a windy, cold October day. It was a four o'clock game too. So it was not the early game. It was the late game. That means it's going to be even cooler for these teams to play. Windy, you never know. There's always mist. There's there's some kind of wetness there in Cleveland. So the AFC Central battle was going to be a tough one for the Steelers, but they got something good going for the fact that they had for the first time all season, their offensive line intact, John Kolb, Sam Davis, Mike Webster, Jerry Moon Mullins, and Larry Brown, who I don't remember too much of Larry Brown. I remember watching him in the 80s, but I didn't realize how big and imposing and how great he was. And he was there too. This was a very formidable line. And it was good to have them back because you had Franco Harris, Rocky Blyer, and Sidney Thornton, and the rookie Greg Hawthorne trying to run through some holes. They needed to get the running game going. Could they do it in this game? We will definitely see, but this is a fun one to talk about. So let's get started. The 59th meeting between the Browns and the Steelers. Once again, October 7th, 1979. And the newly acquired Dino Hall. He was set to go ahead and get the kickoff. And Dino Hall, Tony, wasn't he coaching Little League football the week before? Yeah, he was a guy off the street, and, and, and now he's, uh, he's returning uh, punts and kicks against the uh, world champion Steelers. And he set a record that day. Um, when I went back to look at this day in history, they mentioned Dino Hall. They didn't mention the game, but Dino Hall, who had nine kick returns, kick or punt returns in one game as a Cleveland Browns record and setting it. So that's really interesting. And he was a pretty good player too. Um, he advanced the ball to the Browns 34 after fielding Matt Barr's kickoff, Matt Barr, the rookie from Penn State. Then Browns head coach Sam Rutigliano and offensive coordinator Jim Schaffner, they wanted to establish the run early. That's something that Don Crickey and John Brody in the booth for NBC was adamant that they had to do. And they mentioned that if you could do this, against the steel curtain this formidable foe of a defense then you're going to do very well and they had the running backs to do it now greg pruitt was injured tony but mike pruitt no relation i believe and calvin hill and calvin hill i think he's famous for uh siring a son is that isn't that correct yeah grand hill uh a pretty good uh college basketball player and, and a pretty good nba player and and, and when i when, you know seeing Seeing Calvin Hill in this game was so weird for me because I'm so used to seeing him in those early 70s highlights uh, with the Cowboys. Yeah, I, I thought it was weird, too. I didn't remember that he was with the Browns. I thought it was really cool. So Jack Lambert and Dennis Stewart Winston, they assured that that wouldn't happen too early. They had a big hit on Pruitt on third down. The ball popped loose. Dennis Winston recovered just like that at the Browns 40. So the advantage of getting the ball first was not for the Browns. 
It was for the Steelers, Tony. Great tone to set to start the game, wouldn't you think? Absolutely. You're playing on a road against a, a division rival, and and and, and Derek Winston was, uh, you know, we've talked about in the past, one, one of the unsung heroes from that era. Immediately, the Steelers started to move the chains when Sidney Thornton took the handoff from Terry Bradshaw. He rumbled right behind a great block by Sam Davis for a gain of 23 yards. Then on third and one from the seven, just like that, Bradshaw found Benny Cunningham over the middle to what looked like a fumble, or it could have been an incompletion. But it was rolled a touchdown. The Steelers led 7-0, just like that. Tony, that would have probably been called back in today's modern era of football, wouldn't it? Yeah, ironically enough, it was later on in that year in the AFC Championship game when one of the biggest reasons why they they had they eventually had replay in the uh, Oilers game. But yeah, this this definitely looked like it could have been a fumble or at least an incomplete pass. But Bradshaw and Cunningham had a, a great chemistry in those days. They sure did. Now, someone else that had a great chemistry with his receivers was Brian Sipe. So he decided that he was going to try to get the Browns back to it. They started with a run to move the chains, but then here goes Sipe going back to throw. And it went into the wind, and the Browns had a punt. He could not connect. He was looking to strike quickly. He could not. Then another guy, he found John Stallworth right away, and that's Terry Bradshaw, if you don't know who I'm talking about, for a long pitch and catch for 37 yards down to the Cleveland 29. After moving the chains, Terry located Sidney Thornton in the end zone for a 10-yard scoring toss, just like that, 14-0 in favor of the Steelers. And they talked about Sidney Thornton playing behind Rocky Blyer and Franco Harris, how great he was. He was in 1979. Yeah, uh, they had a lot of injury issues. The Steelers uh, did, and, and he uh, he came in and played some valuable minutes for them. And and what I liked about this play the most is, is Bradshaw. You know, people forget what a great athlete he was, and, and, and how he kind of stayed in live in, in, in the pocket, and then found Thornton for that touchdown. He really did, and it was a very impressive display by Terry as well. In fact, he started off this game eight for eight. He did yeah. not throw a lot of uh, for a lot of yardage. He didn't have to, and you'll find out why. But he was really on in this game. And Terry in that season threw a lot of interceptions. There were a lot of turnovers um, for the Steelers in that 79 championship season, but not on this day. On the third series, the Browns, they started to move the ball down the field with, with receptions by Ozzie Newsom, the Hall of Famer, and Calvin Hill. And they would also log a pass interference with calls on Jack Lambert and another one on Mel Blunt. Cleveland did, however, they got stopped on the 12. They brought in the reliable Don Cockroft for a 19-yard field goal. Was Don Cockroft reliable on this kick, Tony? He was not. He, he sailed it wide right, and it was still 14-0 uh, good guys. Yes, it did go wide right. Steelers get the ball back on third and one from their own 29 the Steelers handed off Franco Harris to try to advance the chains. They needed to get that first down. They would not get the first down because, Tony, Franco Harris decided to do something else. This is one of those iconic plays I was talking about that I remember from my NFL films days in the 80s. He just he exploded down the right sideline, and, and people forget how fast Franco was. I mean, he just took off on this play, and he went pretty much untouched for the touchdown. It was, it was a, a magnificent run by him. Absolutely was 21, nothing now, just like that bar would then kick off to Dino hall who would mishandle the pigskin. 
Tom Graves for the Steelers recovered. That's a name that you don't remember too often. Do you remember Tom Graves, Tony? Not even a little bit. I actually did. I, I remember Tom. He recovered the ball at the Steelers 12, excuse me, at the Browns 12 on the second play. Bradshaw went to Jim Smith, who was in for an injured Lynn Swan for a 12-yard score. That was in the corner of the end zone. Jim Smith was very good, Tony. Yeah, it was, it was a shame that he uh, signed with the, uh, the USFL in the early 80s because he could have been a great replacement for Lynn Swan, who retired after the 82 season. But he was really a good young receiver for them in, in the late 70s, in the early 80s. He was amazing in the USFL, though. Um, absolutely amazing. Uh, Steelers did not get the extra point. Matt Barr, he went left with it a little too wide into the wind. It was only 27 nothing. only 27 nothing. Tony. Yeah, yeah. So Dino Hall, he gets another chance after the gaff, and he took it back to the 37-yard line. Not showing any nerves. Here comes Brian Sipe. He goes deep to Calvin Hill over Dirt Winston for a 31-yard gain to the Steelers' 32. Then after an 11-yard dash by Pruitt, Sipe lofted one to Cleo Miller, guarded by J.T. Thomas at the time. But Ozzie Newsom swooped in. He came out of nowhere to make the grab for the Browns. It was first and goal at the two. And Cleveland was going to score, weren't they, Tony? It sure looked like it at that point. Uh, they, they were set up to get right back into the game, but the Steelers would say otherwise. What did they say, Tony? You tell us. Somebody intercepted that football, and it was the great? The great and the future Hall of Famer, Donnie Shell, with, with the end zone pick. He's, he had a lot of great picks for them in those days, and this was another important one. Every time we do a game from the 70s or the early 80s, Donnie Shell is going nuts and picking off balls. The one we did a few weeks ago with the Cincinnati Bengals in 1982, he had two interceptions. That guy was everywhere. I'm glad he finally made the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it was a long time coming for him. He gets overlooked a lot from those, those years, but he was a very valuable safety, and, and his stats hold up with any safety you, ever, you want to mention throughout his – he, he could stand right next to them. I mean, now he can't for sure because he's a Hall of Famer. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and do this. Let's take a break and we'll be back right after this on the Steelers Retro Show. Stick around, my friends. For BehindTheSteelCurtain.com, my name is Brian Anthony Davis with Tony Defio. We are going back in time to October 7th, 1979, when the 4-1 Steelers were battling the 4-1 Cleveland Browns. And it was definitely a battle. But at this point, Tony, it's a whitewash. It's 27 nothing Steelers. Well, maybe a black and gold wash. Oh, absolutely. The home, that home crowd at the mistake by the lake, they, they had to be stunned. I mean, you, you're feeling pretty good coming into the game. You're in first place. You're, 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 you're matching the, the defending Super Bowl champions in the standings, and they come right in and just, just blow you right out of the water early on. Absolutely. And something that we didn't mention before, because you really don't think about this, but if you're picturing this game, the Steelers – we're the visiting team, but they were wearing their black and gold jerseys while you had the Browns wearing home whites. I never understood that. They did that for a long time, though. The following series, the Steelers finally look human as the black and gold went three and out, and in comes Craig Colquitt to punt it away. This is where the Browns finally got on the board. Sipe struck quickly with a four-play 61-yard drive that ended with a 32-yard connection with one Reggie Rucker, Tony. Remember Reggie Rucker? Not as a player, but but he was a, uh, a longtime color analyst for NBC. I, I remember he always used to do a lot of Steeler games, especially when they played the uh, the Bengals. It seemed like he was always the uh, 
the number two guy in the booth. Yeah, he did. And he did score. And I remember Reggie too. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the score was 27 to seven now, and the Browns would be looking for more as the Steelers went three and out again on the very next series, the Pittsburgh defense forced a punt, but Cleveland had trickery up their sleeves. Tony, when punter Johnny Evans decided to forego the punt and completed a 13 yard pass to one Ricky feature, the former North Carolina state quarterback fold the Steelers on the play and got sight back on the field at the two minute warning, two plays and two completions to Ozzie Newsome. And the Browns now cut the score to 27, 14 with 140, excuse me, 145 left in the half, but the Steelers had time left on the clock and they wanted to gain some momentum. Luckily they had Larry Anderson He did a lot to help after his 42-yard kick return gave them good starting position. Larry Anderson was great for them, Tony. Yeah, he he was good for them uh, in 1979. He he, he had that 42-yard return in this game, and and he had some really good return yardage in the Super Bowl later on in that year. They had some good starting position, like we said. Bradshaw came out throwing with completions to Stallworth and Blyer. After Thornton got the men of steel down to the 26-yard line, Bradshaw threw three straight incompletions, and Barr came on for a 43-yard field goal attempt into the wind with help from the crossbar. Barr's barely good kick made the score 30-14 to with 11 seconds left before the half. Instead of kneeling, Sype went for it all on a heave before the half, but Mike Wagner picked it off, and both teams went into the locker room for halftime, Tony. Mike Wagner was one of those guys that you're not going to talk about as a Hall of Famer, but man, in the Pittsburgh Steelers' mind, he was so pivotal in all four of those Super Bowl years. Mike Wagner was great. He was. He was so consistent, and he started for for 10 straight seasons for one of the greatest defenses in the history of the NFL. That says a lot about him. After the half, the Steelers got the ball back and were moving it well in the run game behind Harrison Thornton with a third and short near midfield. Bradshaw launched one deep to a wide open Jim Smith who could not come down with the perfect pass. It was a nice pass. Smith would lay on the turf for a bit, but walked off under his own power. On came Craig Colquitt again. Tony, they could have really blown it wide open here. Yeah, um, Jim Smith pulled his uh, pulled a line of sweet impression. He, he dropped the pass and then he, he, he laid on the ground uh, in, in, in apparent pain. In his defense, he was miles better than Lima Sweet. I'll just say that. Oh, of course. After a three and out, it appeared that the Browns would get a gift when Theo Bell mishandled the punt, but recovered it. They decided to switch it up with Sidney Thornton then, Tony. Number 38 appeared to be stopped by Lyle Alzado. Remember Lyle Alzado as a Brown, Tony? Uh, yeah, it's so weird to see him. You remember him with the, with the Broncos and the Raiders, but in between, he played a couple years with the Browns. Yes, he did. But he did not stop Sidney Thornton for no gain. What happened? Sidney Thornton had, had a great a great run for uh, 27 yards. He did. Then on the very next play, Harris on a trap play rushed for 25 yards and his second touchdown of the game. It's now 37 to 14. But Brian Sype would not be done. He was not ready to concede the game. With a good mix of runs and the pass, the Browns rallied quickly downfield. On fourth and three from the 14, Sype found Calvin Hill all alone down the left sideline for the score. 
It was now 37 to 21 Steelers with less than five minutes left in the third quarter. What were you thinking with how quick this team was able to strike, Tony? The, the Browns had a very underrated uh, offense in those days, and Brian Sight was a very underrated quarterback, and he had a lot of weapons around him. And with the, uh, the, the defensive rules being uh, relaxed a bit, thanks to the, uh, the, the Mel Blunt rule, it, it was easier for, for a team to get back into the game, and, and, and the Browns, I think, took advantage of that. And that they did. After a Steelers three and out, Sype came out slinging again with a huge throw down the field to Ozzie Newsome. Ozzie Newsome was all over the place. The pitch and catch of 38 yards got the Browns down to the Pittsburgh 30. The throw into quadruple coverage was perfect. Then they decided to go for it on another fourth and three, this time from the 23. Sype called his own number and he came up inches short inches tony the steelers got the ball back as quarter three came to an end but you got to think the battling brian sipe was going to be dangerous in the fourth quarter tony that's what i was thinking oh absolutely and and, and the fact that they that they stopped him here was huge because you're 37 21 if, if they score a touchdown there you're only down by nine points with with a whole quarter to play so that was big if I was watching this game live in 1979, and I very well could have been uh, with my family watching this because they watched all the games, I would have been really nervous with the way Brian Sipe was playing. He was fantastic. The Steelers would then waste no time at the start of the fourth. On third and one, Rocky Blyer announced his presence with authority with his longest ever run from scrimmage. Tony, what was significant about that run? Oh, it was it was a a seventy yard touchdown by by Rocky, and and, and that's another iconic image or, or uh, footage I, I watched growing up on NFL films. Him busting through and going seventy yards, and, and he once told Joe Green he always wanted to have a, a touchdown run where he could feel the uh, the hair sticking out out of the back of his helmet, flapping in the wind, and that and that was his touchdown right there. Well, he definitely did. So with fourteen oh five left, the Steelers were up on the scoreboard, forty four to twenty one. Sipe tried to counter and threw deep down the field, but the ball landed in the waiting arms of the center fielder, Mike Wagner. There he is once again for his second pick of the game. After going three and out, Colquitt came on for a 45-yard punt, but Dino Hall found the sideline and returned at 57 yards before being tackled. Well, let's just say not really tackled, tripped by Colquitt, and the Browns set up shop at the 22-yard line. But the Browns turned the ball over on downs at the 18. The Steelers didn't have the football long, though, as Greg Hawthorne, the number one pick that year, the running back from Baylor, he fumbled the ball and it was recovered by the Browns at the 23. Instantaneously, Sipe would strike and he would find who, Tony? Tight end Dave, Dave Logan for a 31-yard score. Yeah, he was a uh, Dave Logan was a uh, money for them in this game. It was over Mel Blunt with 11:43 remaining. The Steelers' lead lessened to 44 to 28. It would lessen some more as Cockroft's onside kick bounced off an up man and off of the hands of Ricky Jones from Tuskegee. The Browns had new life after two first down strikes to Logan. Logan caught a gorgeous 13 yard pass despite great coverage by mel blunt all of a sudden it's now 44 to 35 tony and that was brian sipes fifth touchdown on the day there's 901 left to play my gosh what are you thinking here 
I'm thinking now I know why they called the 1979 Browns the cardiac kids because they had a lot of last second come behind wins. And this looks like looks like it had the makings of another one of those. Yeah, I got to tell you, like I said a couple minutes ago, I would have been clutching my chest and really worried about Brian Sipe and this team. It seemed to get worse for the Steelers when a mishandled kickoff and a clip forced the Steelers to set up shop at their own six-yard line. But Franco converted a third down, and then Bradshaw on third and seven completed a pass to John Stallworth at the 38 as the clock just started to roll. Roll, clock, roll, and that's what it did. After another third down completion, this time to Benny Cunningham, Bradshaw went long downfield to John Stallworth for a 30-yard hookup. The Steelers would keep moving behind runs by Thornton, Harris, and a face mask penalty called on Cleveland. After Thornton got down to the one, he was thinking, maybe I should close this game out, Tony. Did Sidney do that? He certainly did, and, and it was a much-needed drive by this very explosive offense, and, 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 and now we know why so many of those guys are in the Hall of Fame, and, and now we know why Sidney Thornton was such a valuable member for that 1979 team because he, he put the, the finishing touches on a, uh, on, on a 51-35 victory that wasn't, it didn't look like it would be that close in the beginning. Here's the big thing. They were scoring fast all game long, but when they had to slow it down, they did. They did it right here. This was a 15-play, 8-minute, 94-yard drive to close out this game to not really let the Browns back on the field. The Browns came back on the field with 32 seconds left to go, but they just handed the ball off. They finally conceded the game. The Steelers went to 5-1. and one. The Browns fell to 4-2. and two. Remember the Houston Oilers? We talked about them earlier. They got upset by the St. Louis Cardinals. They fall to 4-2. and two. Pittsburgh is all alone in the AFC Central. They would end up going to the playoffs to not face the Browns, but face the Oilers and go ahead, go on to the Super Bowl and win it. Once again, their fourth Super Bowl of the 1970s, and it had a lot to do with the domination in this game, Tony. Yeah, this game was so much fun to watch. I mean, and, and, and it kind of uh, illustrated a lot of the – uh, it was a microcosm of their 79 season. A lot of explosive uh, offense. The defense was kind of aging, but still had a lot of playmakers on it. And there's a lot of sloppy play by the, by the home team. So it, it was, it was so much fun. And, and, and I could go back and watch it again. I, I, I love the fact that it's still on YouTube. Yeah. I, I love that. We have access to these games on the ground. Franco finished the game with 153 yards, two TDs, Thornton, 98 yards, one TD. Blyer, 81 yards, wow. one TD. Hawthorne, four rushes for 29 yards. He averaged about seven yards per carry. That was an amazing game. Remember at the beginning of the show, we mentioned Kolb, Davis, Webster, Mullins, and Brown were back. Well, they were back big time because those guys don't get the yards without them. Uh, Davis was uh, exceptional in this game. Brian Sipe was pretty amazing in this game too. 22 for 41, 351 yards, five TDs. He did have the three interceptions that went to Mike Wagner too. And Donnie Shell had one. But Tony, once again, an amazing game to go back to. It absolutely was. And, and, and they needed to establish themselves in the division. And this game helped them do that. They absolutely did. So Tony, I loved going back to watch this game. I'm glad I could share the memories with you. Thanks so much. 
Oh, thank you. I, I, I can, I could do these every week, every, every week, these set these seventies games. It's so it's so fun to go back and watch these legends in these uh, broadcast games. For Tony Defio, my name is Brian Anthony Davis. Take us away. We don't mind. You just got to promise us we'll be back in time.